Please remain standing. Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. We're only going to read now uh, the first two-thirds of the passage because I'm going to save the end for later. This passage ends badly. Chapter 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born, in Bethlehem in Judea. They replied, For this is what the prophet has written, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel." Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star... They were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Heavenly Father, help us to come and worship Christ the King, as did the Magi recognizing who he was and that they owed him everything. And they bowed the knee and worshipped him. Father, we pray that we would not be like Herod, pretending to worship, but rebelling at heart. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I said this sermon would end badly. Uh, and at the end of it, perhaps some of you will think it. I, after the early service, I thought, I've had, we have had illness in our house. I've had a cold all through the week. So I will pray for you if you will pray for me that I can think clearly. That will be a blessing to you. But that's not what I meant when I said the sermon will end badly. It's because the passage ends badly with Herod's response to Jesus. That's a catastrophe. And uh, it, it's interesting, after all of our Christmas series, we end on a downer note because the Bible says that the one who made the world came into the world, and though all the world was made by him, the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. This is not a high point in redemption history. It's a low point in redemption history, but it's not the ultimate because that passage goes on to say, yet to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, to these he gives the right to be called the children of God. I want you to know at the outset what the point of all of this is, that you would uh, hear worshiping Christ 
worshiping the baby born, would realize that there's an ultimatum put before you. You cannot be neutral about this. If you think you're a neutral, that's a kind of passive rebellion against acknowledging Christ as king. When he comes, he comes as Savior and as Lord, and his call is, follow me. He leads us to the cross, first to the cross, where we find grace and forgiveness of sins. It's not that he says, follow me, and you can earn your way to heaven. He says, follow me, and he takes us to the cross where we're forgiven of our sins. But he is our Lord and our King. So I just declare at the outset to you what the point is so that you don't uh, get lost in my cold haze if I get messed up uh, in the sermon. Okay, now, the Messiah who came into the world in his incarnation became a son of David. This was promised throughout the Old Testament. The first promise was to Adam and Eve as they witnessed the curse upon the serpent that the seed of the woman would crush his head. So one of these future children, one of these descendants would have victory over the tempter. God promised Abraham many children, but then he uses a word that's singular. Your seed will be a blessing to all the world, a light to all the world. It becomes even more refined when it comes to David. And God places David on the throne. Like father, like son, here David's a shadow of the Christ to come. We've seen how David was a shepherd, David was a servant, David was a savior, a rescuer, uh, David and Goliath among many stories. And David was a king. He was an earthly king. He was a man after God's own heart, but he, he needed a savior too. He's not the perfect king, but he's a shadow of the one who would establish his throne forever his son. So uh, Jesus is a son of David and he is to sit upon the throne of David and establish it forever. We find this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9. It's a little bit of a sword drill for us uh, uh, this morning in the scriptures. This is a very familiar passage that we read often at Christmas. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. It's no wonder that when the Jews were looking for their Messiah to come, that they thought that they were going to have a king that would overthrow the Romans. Because they kept thinking in terms of earthly kingdom. But Jesus established the throne of David, not just for a while, and not just in an earthly way, but conquering sin and death itself. It is a forever, forever kingdom. So that's uh, the prophecy from Isaiah about uh, David establishing the throne uh, of David, uh, about Jesus establishing the throne of David forever. This was prophesied before Isaiah, though. It was prophesied by Jacob when he blessed his sons. Back in Genesis uh, chapter 49, verse 10, 
David is blessing his sons. And Jude is an unlikely uh, choice here. He hasn't shown how much spirituality. There's some awful, awful chapters in Genesis about what Judah did. But Jacob blessing his son says this in verse 10. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. Jacob was, by the Holy Spirit, making a prophecy about Christ. Otherwise, it's just all hyperbole. But it's actually fulfilled in Christ. And then when David comes along, this is uh, uh, reiterated in 2 Samuel chapter 7. David has a bright idea that he wants to build a house for God. He's going to build the temple. He says, here I am sitting in my palace and God's in a tent. And it's, it's a good notion, isn't it? He wants to worship God. But God says, I'm less interested in what you can do for me. Here's what I'm going to do for you. I will build a house for you. Second Samuel 7, just beginning in verse 11b. It says, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. I will establish the house of his kingdom forever. God is promising to David that his kingdom is going to rise above any earthly kingdom. This is going to be a forever kingdom. It's going to be one that is fulfilled by the Messiah himself, his son, who would be his Lord. So those are prophecies about uh, the Messiah coming to be king. To establish the throne of his father's David. And when he's born, the familiar story, he's worshipped by the Magi. So we come back to our passage in Matthew chapter 2. The Magi come to worship uh, Jesus in the first two verses. And they, he come, they come to the palace. Say, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now this is shrouded in mystery. And I've, as I studied this week, I found some things that uh, were extraordinary. It's not the kind, of, the kind of Bible study where somebody has bright ideas that you've never thought of and never could have thought of. And they're just adding it onto scripture. It's like, oh, that's kind of spurious. That's kind of speculative. But this was a Bible study that somebody was, was uh, doing. that started pointing out things. I started to say, I should have seen that. that that's there in the Bible. What? Or, or, why didn't I know that before? Because we've asked questions like, who are the Magi? And what would have caused them to be looking for a star? Why would they be thinking about the Messiah born in Jerusalem? And I've always thought, well, God did some work out there where he was stirring up the hearts beyond the scope of his people Israel. But there's more detail to it than that. Who were Magi? Magi were the, the court counselors. They were kind of the the elite, the courtiers who would advise the king. The king would bring questions uh, to them. The magi is uh, one of the names uh, for them. And it's like learned man, but it's the root of the word we have for magician. magician. They did things, that, you know, they could be very pagan and be into kind of like the witch doctor with the, the, the sorcery. 
But the Magi also included the wise men. When uh, Daniel was in Babylon, uh, we learned that Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were included in these courtiers, these attendants to the king, and they were consulted. So the term wise man is pretty good because it's general enough that we could see how somebody is very uh, pagan, and, but, or, but they're elite. They're studied. They're well-read in their field, or they can have faith in God. It's not defined yet whether the wise men were believers or not. It kind of includes some believers and some who are not. But why would these wise men, why would these magi be believing in God and looking for this star and wanting to come worship the king of the Jews? Well, I know the name of the first wise man. Anybody, can anybody tell me? I figured it out this week. Jasper? <laughs> Where does that one come from? I tell you what, I've got it. This is, this is really something. I never realized that Balaam in the Old Testament would factor into the Christmas story. But do you know where Balaam is from? He's from the town of Pethor, near the river, right close to the city of Babylon. So he's from this same region, okay? And he is uh, years, hundreds of years before Daniel arrives in Babylon. So let's go through the courts of Babylon and then see their predecessor, uh, Balaam. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 2. We'll just read the beginning of this uh, passage. In chapter 2, verse 1, In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled, and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, the magi, the enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. Now, first, the wise men, the magi, the attendants, these are, these are groups of people with different specialties. They probably all could have been called uh, the, the wise men of the king. He's the, this is the group that he consulted when he needed some information. Some of them were more into divinations and other kinds of pagan sorceries. And so probably in this court, they pretty much all were, except that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had risen to status of being a counsel to the king. So the king says, tell me this dream. I want to know what it means. And the astrologers answer the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will interpret it. Anybody can do that. Tell me your dream. I'll take a stab at it. The king replied to the astrologers, this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Uh-oh. Can you imagine being in that court? What's more, they replied, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will interpret it. I can hear panic in their voice. Then the king answered, 
I am certain that you are trying to gain time because you realize that this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is just one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then tell me the dream and and I will know that you can interpret it for me. He's no fool. If they can tell him his dream, then they're getting it divinely revealed to them and he can count on their interpretation. Word reaches Daniel that they're all going to be killed. There's no hope. Daniel goes in before Nebuchadnezzar and says, give me some time. No man can do what you're asking, but God can reveal mysteries. And so Daniel, that night, was given a vision by God of what Nebuchadnezzar's dream was and what it means. And he goes back and he tells Nebuchadnezzar about this statue with the head of gold and the various metals down to the iron legs and the feet of iron and clay, representing the four kingdoms that would follow one after the other. Until the kingdom of God, the rock that was not cut with human hands, would come and knock the whole thing down and would grow and grow and fill the earth, the kingdom of God. Nebuchadnezzar cannot believe he... He knows this is from God because Daniel told him his dream. And his dream was about kingdoms in this world that would be conquered in the end by the kingdom of God. Now, who's going to be most grateful for that? Probably not Nebuchadnezzar. His kingdom will, will fall. What about the other magi in the court? They would have been killed. Don't you know that Daniel was MVP that day? For the rest of his life, they listened to Daniel. Now, besides that, as they listened to Daniel, they might have shared a story that they each had from their own backgrounds. And that's the story of Balaam. Because Balaam was from their area. He was their predecessor. He was their forebear. And don't you know when Balaam, the story of Balaam, in a nutshell, I took way too long in the early service for this and didn't get around. This is where my fog kicked in. So let me try to give it to you in a nutshell. Balaam was hired by the enemies of Israel, King Balak, to go and curse Israel. Balaam was one who did believe in God. He said, I can't only do what God says I should do. But it's something mixed in Balaam that he still will do things that are wrong for hire. It's kind of like the, the witch doctor that becomes a Christian, but he hasn't given up all of his old practices yet. But he acknowledges God and Balaam is, he, he, he'll get, you pay me to do it, I'll try anything, but I can only do what God allows me to do. But his heart's kind of in it. And God stops him along the way. This is where I, I couldn't help but get drawn into the story about Balaam, Balaam and his donkey. Go read it for yourself. By the time Balaam gets there, he knows God's hand is in this. And he blesses, he blesses Israel. And when he blesses Israel, he says something astounding. In Numbers chapter 24, verse 15, in his fourth oracle that was supposed to be a curse, that God turned into a blessing by the message he gave to Balaam, he said this. The oracle of Balaam, son of Beor, the oracle of one whose eye sees clearly, the oracle of one who hears the words of God, who has knowledge from the Most High, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who falls prostrate and whose eyes are opened. I see him, but not now. 
I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab, the skulls of all the sons of Sheth, etc., etc. Daniel is saying, when when these others had hired him to curse Israel, he's saying, there's a star that's going to arise from these people that will crush all those who tried to hire me to curse you. The kingdoms of this world will be destroyed. The kingdom of God will last forever. This is where the notion came for the, as is passed down in the uh, annals of uh, Babylonian wisdom about watch out for this star. Now they, they would have known that it was metaphorical in, in many ways, but they also believed that the stars might actually carry out the metaphors. You know, they were astrologers. They, they were doing that kind of thing. They're looking for signs in the heavens. But they get the idea that they should watch out for a star. Now, they're from the east. So when we said we saw his star in the east, it may be while we were in the east, we saw his star. That means they'd have to be looking west. But probably more than that, the in the east means rising, morning. That's what it means. It could be that he, we saw his morning star, his Morning star, remember what, uh, what Balaam said. A star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel. The idea of the rising star is, is there. And they know when to look for it. You ever thought about that? They knew that from Balaam. Now, I would say that, that makes Balaam, the, it give, that's the name of the first magi. First one named in the Bible. He's the soothsayer, the seer from around Babylon. He's a wise man from the east. You know his name. That's a trivia question for you. I know the first wise man's name. Then not only that, Daniel comes and he says, yeah, we know the story of Balaam from our side. We'll we'll share that with you. And, uh, And then he goes on to save their lives. And they're listening intently to Daneel. And Daniel, in chapter 9 of of his book, has another vision. And in this vision, oh, it's it's a whole Bible study itself. There is a vision of the 77s. Those are seven weeks of years. Just trust me. It's 490 years. Yeah, we'll figure that out on the side. Don't have time. 490 years from the issue of the decree to allow the Israelites to go back and rebuild until the Messiah comes, the anointed one comes. This all happened in the Babylonian courts. This happened after Daniel had saved the skins of the rest of the Magi, the wise men. And they're listening to Daniel. And so they're thinking in 490 years, one will rise up who will crush the other kingdoms. And it sounds like a good number of the wise men actually believed and the God of Israel, just like Balaam had. They were still perhaps practicing mixed arts and you know, confused stuff in the pagan courts of the kings of Babylon. But they believed in the true and living God. And they were watching for that star. And they knew 490 years later, it's coming up time. When was that decree issued? Was it, I wonder if it was this date when he sent the letter out or it was when we first started out going back. They might not have known exactly the year, but they were watching in this time for his star. And they come to Herod and say, 
Whereas the one who has been born king of the Jews, we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Why did they go to the palace in Jerusalem? There's another prophecy in the Old Testament that they had not heard. And that is from Micah. Micah says, For you, Bethlehem in Judea, are by no means the least of the tribes of Judah, of the places in Judah, uh, for out of you will come the one who will be king. The Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem. Now, the wise men didn't know that, so they just came to the palace. Where would you go to find a king? You go to the palace. But Herod's wise men knew enough of the scriptures. When Herod asked them, where is this king to be born? But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. These are Herod's wise men telling him the babe's going to be born in Bethlehem. Now, picture yourself being Herod. Herod's not even an Israelite. He's an Edomite. The Aramites, the Edomites, the Moabites, they were all the ones who were conspiring. They were the ones in league hiring Balaam to curse Israel. And now this Edomite has converted to Judaism, has taken on its practices, and he isn't even given the title king from Rome. Yeah, he's, well, he's King Herod the Great, but he's a vassal king under Caesar. And he knows he's not really the rightful uh, king. And he remembers these promises, but they're promises against him because they will dethrone him. And he, uh, he knows that there's a true king born out there. Why does he care? Because he's not rightfully sitting on the throne. Personal application. We each have that throne in our lives. If we're sitting on it, if we're the ones that we think we are the master of our fate, we are the ones in control of our lives, we get to do what we want, we're not rightfully sitting on the throne. And that's why when we hear of God, it's, it, it can scare us, it can unnerve us, because we know somewhere in our hearts and minds, he's the true king. Herod heard the true king was born, and his response then was to pretend. Herod said to the wise men, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. It's easy to pretend on the outside and yet still rebel against God on the inside. That's a message for each of us here today. As Christ comes and is king, that messes with us. Do you acknowledge him as king or are you still in rebellion and just outwardly pretending so the wise men uh, leave jerusalem to go to bethlehem and it says in verse 9 after they had heard the king they went on their way and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was when they saw the star they were overjoyed let's stop a second and ask what was that star have you ever thought about that I mean, our Christmas cards picture it as some star up in the heavens. Astronomers have tried to figure out when was there some special configuration where it shined brighter than others. I don't believe it was an astronomical event. I believe it was a spiritual event. And when you stop and think about it, um, where where could a star up in the heavens move and come to rest over the place where Jesus lay? And stars in the heavens, if they are moving, they're moving from east to west because they're up there in the sky and the earth is spinning. 
right? But the route from Jerusalem to Bethlehem is not from east to west. The star wouldn't move in that direction. This was something that was not astronomical. This was a special, miraculous revelation of God. Can you think of a place in the Old Testament where the people of God were led by a special, miraculous revelation of light from God? In the wilderness, the pillar of fire by night. Have you ever thought about that before? The Shekinah glory of God led the people through the wilderness to the promised land. The Shekinah glory of God came and dwelt over the tabernacle, demonstrating the presence of God there. And and consider this. The wise men out there in the east, considering this could be the timing for that rising star in in, uh, Jerusalem, in Israel, We should watch for him. They might have thought it would just get news, but they were watching the sky too. What happened in the skies the night that Jesus was born? We've talked about the shepherds a lot. The angel appeared to the shepherds, and then suddenly there's a heavenly host, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. Never thought about this before. I thought it was probably just some miracle only the shepherds saw. And it could have been just miraculously revealed to the shepherds and to the wise men. Or it could have been if anybody would have awakened in the middle of the night, they would have wondered, boy, what was that odd flash of lightning? But the Magi were looking for a star. And the curvature of the earth was no problem because how high does the heavenly host go? For the Magi out in the east to see, did you see that light? Did you see that over the horizon? It was right over Israel. They could have seen the glory of God that was uh, opened up to the shepherds. And from a distance, it would have been just that little point of dot. It would have very much been a star uh, to them. And it didn't stay. It didn't remain. They didn't follow the star from the east all the way to Jerusalem. They just made their way to Jerusalem. They knew how to get there. They went to the palace. The Bible says the star led them from from the palace from the capital to Bethlehem. And it moved before them, as did that pillar of fire by night. It moved before them. The, the Greek word even has the sense of the light strewn over the pathway. It's, it's like the lamp light. It, it's more than just stars. That, it's the, the lamp light went before them, showing the way. The Shekinah glory of God went on before them and then came down to the place where, the Christ, where Christ lay. That's thrilling. And they knew God dwells here. This is the tabernacle of God himself in the flesh. Jesus is said to be, his incarnation is described that he tabernacled among us. And they fell down and worshipped him. Do you, this morning, fall down and worship him? I said this message ended badly. Um, because that was not Herod's response. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord, this is verse 13, appeared to Joseph in a dream, get up and take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there till I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so is fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son.
When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet of Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. When we rebel against Christ the King, who is the King of peace, Jerusalem is the city of peace. He's the one who provides peace between us and God. When we rebel against that, we just hurt ourselves and we hurt everybody around us. It brings conflict into our relationships. It brings conflict within ourselves. Hatred and anger and discord and fighting and, and envy and slander and uh, adultery. None of that's really fine. Why do we think the world's way is fine? It brings wailing and weeping in the end. But that's Herod's response. That's what he does. And I don't think it means that it took two years for the wise men to get to him. It probably took a few months for the wise men to get to uh, uh, Jerusalem. And then maybe a, a, it's just a few days, but a few months before Herod realized they're not coming back here. They're not just visiting a long time. Maybe it was a year, but you know, Herod was extravagantly cruel. They knew the day that that light appeared in the sky was the day the child was born. Herod could have figured out, go find out what baby was born on that day. And said, he said, kill everybody two years and under. Whew. Extravagantly cruel. The wreck that our sin brings into the world is, is so awful. And yet we so easily justify it and justify ourselves. Instead of turning to the king of kings and bowing the knee to him. I had uh, overdone myself this week because I uh, had started on a, a whole narrative from Herod's perspective. I just want to read the end of it to you. Speaking as Herod, not Herod the Great, but Herod the Great's son who mocked Jesus in his court. And remember that his father tried to kill Jesus. He thought he was mocking a Nazarene, and then he finds out that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And he thinks, oh, could it be? Could he have escaped my father's, my father's wrath? I thought that my father took care of this. Could this be the true king? And then Herod the son dies. So now I am dead. And I face God. The one who in my court I mocked. I in his court find judgment wrought. And I'm undone. I hate him still. I never worshipped, never will, but oh, the agonies of hell. I bow the knee, I do confess that he's the king of righteousness, but I'm undone. Do you want to be king? You don't need a throne, just live for yourself. Your will be done. Mock the Savior, have your fun. Get rid of those who get in your way. Take whatever you want today. But you will face the king of kings and join me in my sufferings. No, don't be like me. Come to him who came to us in Bethlehem, the king of kings and lord of lords. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, 
there's anyone here today who is thinking in his heart and soul that he is estranged from you, whether he belongs to you as a child and is just pulling away right now or whether he has never uh, truly received Christ as Savior and Lord, I pray that you would do the work in his or her heart uh, to turn them, to draw them to yourself and let them bow the knee in the way that the Magi did, not against their will the way we ultimately we would have to, acknowledging Christ, but with willing and loving and worshiping responses to say, we love you, Lord, and we worship you, our King. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.